Now it's time for Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf, the number one relationship advice radio show in the U.S. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Ask Dr. Love. I'm Dr. Jamie Turndorf, and it is my pleasure to be with you again. So do you keep ending up with a crappy boyfriend, girlfriend, or life partner? If you said yes, I got a couple questions for you. Are you sick and tired of dead-end relationships? Are you over having your heart broken over and over again? Do you find yourself falling into relationship patterns that haunt you from relationship to relationship? Do you have trouble handling your angry feelings in a way that doesn't damage your partner and the relationship? Do you find it difficult to identify with your partner's feelings, especially when you're fighting? Are you not receptive to feedback about how you come across to your partner? If you said yes to any of my questions, you're going to want to stay with me to find out the real reasons why your relationships keep tanking and to learn about what steps you can take to get off the merry-go-round of less-than-merry relationships. My guest today, Dr. Robert Pepper, he's the author of many scholarly articles and two books, the first entitled Emotional Incest in Group Psychotherapy and 99 Plus One Unconventional Interventions in Group Psychotherapy. Dr. Pepper specializes in group therapy. He's been running groups for over 25 years, and he has a special gift in helping members resolve conflicts with relationships, both personal and professional. His groups are not socialization groups, but Learning social skills is a byproduct of the group experience. Members learn to resolve obstacles to developing healthy relationships through their interactions with group members. And Dr. Pepper has seen members grow and change in ways that they never expected through the group experience. He's helped them release energy through the verbalization of feelings in the group setting. And this release of energy has been a great aid to them in living healthier and more satisfying lives. I can go on and on with his bio, but I'd rather just have you meet Dr. Pepper yourself. So welcome. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I love having you, Rob. So, um, you know... Before we really dive in, I was thinking, you know, Freud said that the career choice that we make is often linked to childhood trauma. And he told the story about a patient who used to peer through the hole of, you know, the keyhole to watch his parents having sex. And Uh what did he become? I think a gynecologist. So he's always looking up uh, orifices. So how did you come to write the book, the first book about emotional incest in group psychotherapy, and it's all about, you know, boundary violations and so on. Mm-hmm. How'd you get there? Well, that's a great question. Actually, it was based on partly my own experience. It's, it's somewhat of a memoir. As a young man, I uh, found myself in a very difficult romantic relationship and realized I couldn't figure this out on my own. And so I began my own psychotherapy at age 22. And at that time, I knew nothing about therapy. I asked someone that I knew who was in treatment, a guy I respected, if he could recommend somebody, if he could ask his own therapist. And my only criterion was the person had to be in my neighborhood. That's all that I knew. And so it was the best, one of the best and one of the worst experiences, as it turned out. Uh, We could talk a little bit about that. But What happened was in the course of therapy, um, he suggested that I study to be a group therapist. He said to me, I think you would make a good therapist. So I joined his uh, training organization. And once again, that was one of the best and worst things uh, that I ever did. My first job uh, 
career was to be a college professor. But after, after having been in my own therapy for a while, I realized being a professor wasn't going to be enough for me in terms of uh, interpersonal contact. So, and I've been doing it for more than 25 years now. So, yeah. And, and I, I do it. remember a humorist. Was this the therapist who you caught in his underwear? Was this the same guy? Do you remember that story? I do. <laughs> I really, <laughs> he had his office in his apartment. And on the left was his uh, living quarters. On the right was the, uh, the group room. And the foyer acted as a waiting room. Well, one day I came in a little bit earlier and I'm sitting in the waiting room. And sure enough, he comes out of the living quarters in his tidy whities and Were they I, tight, though? Well, <laughs> it wasn't really a very attractive scene. He had a big scar down his belly. and Oh, my goodness. So I said to him, what are you doing here? And he said to me, what are you doing here? And he slams the door. And I said to him, um, I said to myself, when the group starts, I have to bring this up. So, so when the group started, I was, you know, rattled to see this guy in his uh, natural. And, and I told the group what happened. And the group agreed that I had invaded his territory. Ah, so they protected. They protected him at my own. The leader at your expense. They really threw you under the bus. Exactly. And that was a learning lesson that whenever I became a therapist, I would never do that to anybody. Never question someone's perception of reality. That's the craziest. That's the way to make someone crazy. Right? Gaslighting. That's what it's yeah. called. Gaslighting. Gaslighting. Wow. And, you know, they say that the people who have been gaslit in childhood, that is the formula for schizophrenia. Well, I don't think there's anybody following me right now. So yeah, uh, not at this moment, because luckily, (laughs) but, you know, the thing is also that's an example of the boundary violations and how it's so cancerous to the group, because somehow the group was not functioning like a correct, you know, the way a group should you know, they were too busy protecting his ass, literally, and his tidy whities And, you know, well, we can get back to that. But let's talk about love relationships in the second book. The second book is I changed the title since the one that you had read it. I called it Some People Don't Want What They Say They Want. And it's based on the idea that we all have conflicted motives in whatever we do. People seek healthy relationships, but inevitably we all go about messing up in one way or another. So is that the book that was a re- that you renamed the 91 plus one? Right. That one's right. become the... Some, some people, people don't, don't want what they say they want. Okay, so I like that book. And what's really awesome about that book is it's like you're reading a reality show. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love how you bring in the case examples and you flesh them out in a very realistic way to show the different points that you're making. Did anyone stand out? Any one of the... Basically, so many. And, you know, so I thought perhaps you would like to talk about, I mean, the nitty gritty. That's like how your your book begins, the nitty gritty doing group therapy. But if you want to focus specifically on the group members, that's what you have at part A of the book. The things that you worked with and the interventions and how this connects to people's problems in forming relationships. Well, the thing was, when I I started writing the book, I had initially been asked by uh, colleagues. I've given talks through the United States and in Canada about my methods of working with group. And people said, where can we read more about this? So I thought, all right, right now. But then I decided the best way to teach this is through stories. It's not a therapist textbook. 
And so it, I think and hope it's accessible to anybody who's thinking psychologically. And so um, the stories have all been based on my experience, some of them from many years ago. I just remembered when I decided to write the book, stories that stood out for many years ago, but then things started to happen in the groups that I was doing at that time. So one chapter that I think is relevant, the title says it all. And the title of that chapter that I'm thinking is called, Go Away, But Don't Leave Me Alone. Ah, there you go. So it's all about the ambivalence. People seek comfort, they draw people to them, and then they'll do something to push the person away. And the irony is they don't see it. They don't see it. So true. And of course, the they say that 98% of everything we do and say is motivated by unconscious forces. So you consciously want someone close, but unconsciously you're terrified. Well, right. But you know, not everybody accepts the idea of the unconscious. It's a theory. And in fact, you can't see it directly. It reminds me of the first book that I read about it, which was Freud's first book, The Psychopathology of Everyday Life. And his genius in that book was he took everyday common experiences and made sense out of them from a psychological point of view, pointing to the unconscious, like slips of the tongue, yes. like unconscious forgetting, yes. like losing things, like being um, um, hurting. Here, here, here's an example from that book. He told the example of a woman saying to another woman, you look very pretty tonight. And he was saying that was unconsciously aggressive because it means you look like dog crap all the other nights. <laughs> <laughs> that was unconscious aggression, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So um, based on my experience with people being ambivalent, I, I wrote, a, I'm writing a third book. And this one, the working title is, do you ever wonder why your romantic relationships end badly? So that's what we're talking about today. And one of the chapters in that book I call Sea Turtles Don't Need Group Therapy. And it's kind of a way of saying anybody who's had parents is a good candidate for group therapy. Because Meaning your parents make you nuts. That's what parents do, right? Yes, that's their job to make you nuts. Yeah. To some extent, look, I'd like to frame it as a, as a continuum. Everybody has something. Some people worse than others. But the idea that we're governed by forces that are out of our awareness is threatening to a lot of people. People don't want to see that. And that's why I think to some extent people gravitate toward the CBT kind of therapy, cognitive behavioral. But the reality is that emotions are not of the intellect. That's right. And so what you learn consciously may have nothing to do with how it affects your behavior. Absolutely. And there's a lot of research, right? People might have temporary behavioral improvements or attempt to change their cognitive, you know, uh, thinking, but they don't do well in the long run because the underlying unconscious factors, the traumas that trigger our thoughts and feelings, our, our thoughts and our actions, if you don't address the emotions and the deformative years trauma, you, you don't really get better. There's a recent article in the uh, British uh, paper called uh, the, the uh, Journal of the Guardian, and it talks about recent research that shows that positive gains through uh, CBT kinds of therapy, cognitive behavior, dissipate over time. That's but gain, gains made through analytic treatment tend to last. That's it, because it's more of a structural thing. So let's let's talk about the things you've noticed in the group members, right, that yeah. gave you clues as to why they kept unconsciously choosing bad relationships or getting stuck in bad relationships or what they thought were bad relationships. What was okay. their role? 
All right, that's a very good question. But before I do that, I, I wanna back up a little bit and say, when people come to me for therapy, they usually want individual therapy and they come okay. with a combination of anxiety and depression. And they don't want group therapy because frankly, they think the group is gonna be like their first group, the family and of all. Right. And who wants to repeat that? They're right, right? That's right. So um, it's, if they, in the uh, screening interview, they say anything that suggests to me that they're having problems either professionally or personally, I'll plant the seed and say, well, I, a group can help with that. Good. And I don't trust anybody who comes to the first session too eager to join a group. Because to me, usually those people are thinking that group is going to be like a, a dating website and they're going to hook up with somebody. You said it before, therapy is not social. It's work. And it takes a long time to understand what the patterns are. For example, I had a uh, situation where I saw a woman for about a year in individual therapy. Her initial complaint was that she saw herself as being mistreated by her wicked stepsisters. And for a year, she complained bitterly about how they treated her. And any attempt I made to get her to see, well, maybe you had something to do with it, she just dismissed out of hand. So yeah. after, after a year, I said to her, you know, I think group could help. And she was reluctant, but she trusted me enough. So she joined one of my groups. Jamie, do you know, within the first 45 minutes, she no. verbally abused every woman in that group. There you go. And I said to her, I think it's best if you just sit and listen quietly for a while. But what I was really thinking is if you keep this up, I'm going to have to remove you on your first night. You can't do this in a group. I learned more about her in the 45 minutes in that first group than a whole year of individual therapy. What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, the thing is, I think that's part of also why people are afraid to join group, because you know you're going to be exposed in a different way, you know, because when you're one-on-one, -on -one, you can tell your little story, your script, and the therapist yeah. say, poor you, and you're a victim, and you go into the group, you know you've got a public audience to whatever your shtick is, and it's harder well, to hide. Everybody has, a, I call everybody has a spin of their life, for better or worse, but that isn't necessarily how they come across. So uh, in one case, for example, I had a fellow who, who I was seeing in individual therapy and he was complaining bitterly to me about his relationship with his wife. And he painted, his, painted himself as, as the victim. I said to him, there are no victims, just volunteers. What is your part in this? That's your line. I remember getting that from you many years ago. No I victim. said that there are no victims, only volunteers. Oh yeah, okay. So the next night I saw him with his wife and don't you know, when she came in, she told a story of how he had been provoking her. And then it all made sense. Her reaction to him was he didn't see how, he saw how, how she pulled away, but he didn't see how he pushed. And that is such a common theme. That he is was, so true. That is so true. You know, so often, this is not a very popular thing to say, what I'm about to say. Brace yourself, Effie. So, you know, often when you have couples and one person comes in, I'm the victim, I'm the victim, I'm the victim of the other person. And ultimately, he or she did the ultimate wrong and cheated on me. And it's like, you don't see you saw that the person cheated, and that is certainly not the correct way of dealing with your relationship conflicts, but what did you do to push the other person away? You know, what did you do or say or not do and say? And it, that's a very hard thing for people to look at and say, wait a minute, I'm wrong here, but yes, you did do something. Well, that's a very good point. It reminds me, one of the chapters in my the second book is called, She Was Only Bound by Paper Shackles. And it's a story about a woman who comes to the group at the suggestion of individual therapist because she's very unhappily married. She and her husband have been 
sexless for 10 years and she's thinking about having an affair, but she feels so guilty about it and she's afraid to, uh, to even bark on it. She's afraid if he ever found out, it would kill him. And she um, came uh, and I asked her, well, how can the group help you with this? And she said, well, I don't know. I said, well, do you need the group's permission to have an affair? So she came into the group and started talking about the relationship. And what happened was, from what she was telling us, there were things that he had been doing over the years that really pushed her away. And it occurred to me, and this may sound extremely uh, out there, uh, controversial, it seemed to me that he was actually pushing her toward it. He was withholding emotionally. He That's held that feeling. He was critical. She got no sense of appreciation. She felt undesired by him. Exactly. So it occurred to me that perhaps in some situations, affairs are unconsciously arranged. Yes. And I do think that there's also an unconscious permissions, you know, like with the computer, I'm the doer, I'm the doey. And there's something about him saying, I'm pushing you away. You know, I and I and and then she and I want you to be the one who does the cheating, and it's uh -huh. all unconscious. It's totally unconscious, you know. But the thing that happened in the group that I talk about the group was that she got a lot of support, particularly from the men, to go forward with this affair. Um, and then one night she comes in and she reports a dream from the night before, from the week before. Dreams are very important in both individual and group therapy, but when they're um, presented in group, I have a different way of treating them than an individual. When someone comes in with a dream, an individual, I ask them three things. When, what happened the day of the dream? What do you think the dream means? And what was your feeling in the dream? And that's very fruitful. We can get into that if you want. But in the group, when someone presents a dream, what I say to the group is, what is the unspoken message to the group from this dream? So she comes in with a dream that the night before, all the men in her life who loved her, dead and alive, came to her and told her to go for it. Go for the affair. And she came in so thrilled. So when she told the dream to the group, I said, well, what's, what's the message to the group? I said that there. She said, well, I don't know. Well, then I said to uh, the group, anyone know what it means? And uh, one of the guys in the group said, yeah, she's getting permission from the group. But she got very concrete and said, no, I dreamt about my dead relative. And then someone said, it doesn't matter. It's symbolic. The dream is symbolic. It's not necessarily concretely that, and maybe they did come to you, but you well, get because it. of the fact that it was everyone. That's sort of like everyone in the group, right? That was my thinking. She presented it as a group of people came to her. That my was her group. That was the group. Her group okay. supporting her. Huh. Yes, yes. And what eventually happened to her? She consummated the affair and then said to the group, "I can't continue with this." And we said, "Well, why not?" She said, "Because the guilt is killing me." She could not deal with the guilt. So my, my, my advice to her was, is it possible to feel guilty without acting guilty? And it was like a bulb went on in her head. She never considered that you can have a feeling and not act on it. And I think that's part of being an adult. We, we can have all feelings. And what happens in the group is people explore all their feelings to, so that they can make a decision based on that. The only legitimate function I think of a therapist is to help people understand the emotions that underlie their decisions. We're not in a position to tell them what to do, to make decisions for them. People come to my office, oh, should I have an abortion? How can I possibly make that decision? It's a trick question because if I say, have an abortion, how could you say that? Don't have a, either way, it, it, it's, it's gonna fail. Right. So 
Right. You know, I was thinking also this case that you're describing reminds me of a woman that I saw whose husband was violent. <clears throat> he was <clears throat> out of control, violent. One day he picked her up when she was sitting in a chair and he threw her and the chair against the wall. And right. he said, if you ever call the cops, you'll be dead before they get here. Uh -huh. And when she worked with me, you know, I didn't do the thing where I was telling her, you've got to, you know, divorce him and you've got right, to, right, call. Right. you know, right. I didn't do any of that. Instead, I worked with her on her own feeling about I'm so dependent on him. I couldn't yes. live without him. That's and right. so I helped her to feel like she could live without him. She started to go back to school. She knew she could support herself. And, you know, the shift in her, the feeling inside her was so profound she never had to issue an ultimatum to her husband and tell him if you don't stop i'll leave you he felt the change and he stopped abusing her wow. that's great and, that's a great story yeah but i'm thinking about the woman that you talked about and i had the fantasy that somehow her becoming healthy enough to say i deserve better you know and even if she didn't tell her husband that she cheated that somehow her own growth would have come through to him in some way and but you know yeah, what occurs to me, I've seen it time and time again, when one mate lives with another mate who's not taking good care of themselves, the other mate feels guilty about taking good care of themselves. It becomes like a contagion. But I gotta that's tell you, very true. That's very thing, true. When I first started my work as a therapist, I worked at a clinic and I worked with women who were abused. And they would tell me these horrific stories. And I'd say, oh, you got to leave him. He's terrible. And they'd say, leave him. I'm leaving you. I love him. And they would leave. Until Absolutely. I got it. And, Absolutely. And then, Absolutely. I would, then I would hear things like they would actually tell me what they were doing to provoke the guy to the point where they were being mistreated. Well, that was and, already progress that they started to see that. We have to take a break. We'll be okay. back in a moment. Are you a business looking to expand across the USA? Ask Dr. Love reaches millions of radio listeners, offering you a unique opportunity to reach out to almost every adult listening group as everyone is concerned about their relationships. There is no other relationship advice show broadcast anywhere else in the USA. By advertising on Ask Dr. Love, your company can reach an audience that no other show touches. Visit AskDrLove.com and fill out the contact form to get in on this tremendous opportunity. Fill out the contact form at AskDrLove.com right now and get all the details. Will it be your company that gets to take advantage and grow your business? Want to save money on your next flight? Then pick up the phone and call because the best prices are not online. See, SmartFares has special deals with the airlines. When they have unsold seats, they use SmartFares to fill them. So you get airline tickets at ridiculously low prices. With the extra money you'll save, you can book another trip or treat yourself to dinner. Call today and get the best price on your next flight. Guaranteed. Also, save up to 50% off business and first-class tickets. You're listening to Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf. If your heart is still hurting over the bodily loss of your loved one, the reason is simple. We're not meant to be separated from those we love. 
and reconnecting is the only way to end the grief. But reconnecting and staying connected requires guidance. As a gift to her listeners, Dr. Turndorf is offering a limited number of discounted grief relief sessions to help you reestablish a relationship with loved ones in spirit and resolve any unfinished issues. If you're ready to experience the healing and joy of reconnecting, visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to schedule your session. But don't wait. Space is limited. Visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to find out more. And now, back to Dr. Turndorf. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Love. I'm talking with Dr. Robert Pepper. But Rob, this is the case to say, thank God you don't have an enlarged prostate. Because when you go for a pee break, and I'm thinking, oh God, oh God, I hope he's back in time. So (laughs) I got to tell you a story. Can I tell a story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some years ago, I saw a woman of individual therapy after her second divorce, and she came in um, because she couldn't understand what was going on in her life. It was the second time. She, she said when she was a young woman at 18, she married a guy who was a raging alcoholic. And in fact, as they're walking down the aisle to get married, he says to her, after we get out of the church, I'm going to beat you up. And he proceeded to beat her up. Um, so she stayed with him. She stayed with him until she got enough strength to leave him. And then she swore that she would never get involved with an alcoholic again. So she dated a guy, complete teetotaler, didn't drink, didn't smoke. Within two years, he was a, a raging alcoholic. So I thought, did she drive him to drink? But what occurred to me is that for some reason, this woman needed someone who was out of control. And so I asked her, why do you need to be with a man that was out of control? And bingo, what happened was she told me about her family. Her father was a raging alcoholic. Every brother was a raging alcoholic. This is what she knew. And that's the, that's the repetition compulsion. We repeat. I can't believe you're saying this because while you were taking your break, I thought, let's come back and talk about the repetition compulsion. <laughs> and you just, you just did it. Uh-huh. Because I was going to ask you to talk about why do people end up in the same types of relationships over and over again. So here we are with the repetition compulsion. And people wonder why. Why would this happen? I had the most horrible parent, the most horrible trauma. Why would I keep repeating it? Because we gravitate toward what we know, even if it's not unhealthy, even if it's unhealthy. The status well, quo resistance is what, the, well, right? That it's familiar well, yeah. pain is preferable to the unknown. Change is always stressful, even if it's for the best. We resist as much as we want it. We resist it. That's We're the type creatures of, the of habit. Pe- creatures we, of habit, right? We resist and, it. But then there's a second reason we repeat, because we're hoping, right, that if we choose the same type of person and we can recreate the original trauma, we will be able to work for a happy ending this time. Not that the other kind of happy ending, but the happy ending to our original trauma. I'm going to get my partner to give me the emotional goodies I didn't get from my parent. What's wrong with the other happy ending? But but that's a different kind of happy ending than the one we're talking about. Right. (laughs) Well, I got to tell you, there's a, there's a chapter in my, another chapter in my book called the caretaker uh, in group. And there are two types of caretakers. But they both have to do with early experiences with mothering. There are some mothers who cannot allow their child to experience any anxiety. And so they infect their child with anxiety. And they have to take care of people growing up. 
in order to calm their own. And then there's ones who come from parents who were negligent. And the wish is that if they could take care of that parent well enough, then maybe that parent would turn around someday and take care of them. And that's the repetition composure. But the sad thing is, it doesn't get, the, hat, the ending that they're hoping for never occurs because they're making a deal in their head. They know, well, because they're they're choosing a partner who emotionally resembles the parent who let them down. So what are the odds that you're going to get the leopard to change its spots? All right. But more than that, it's never discussed. So the other person doesn't even know what the expectation is. The person uh, is unconscious and unspoken. Unspoken. And so they're always let down because the person is not taking care. And they'll say, well, I never asked for anything. Now I'm asking for one thing. Nobody's agreed to that. It's all in their head. And so they're always bitterly disappointed. And what I find is instead of questioning their expectations, they question their choice. I made the wrong choice. I picked the wrong person. And I say, no, you didn't pick the wrong choice. You didn't make the wrong choice. What we have to look at is what your expectations of a, of a relationship are. Nobody's responsible for making you happy but you. And you're not responsible for your mate's happiness either. And that comes as a re revelation for some people. They think that that's their responsibility. And it's interesting because I, you know, my my first book, Till Death Do Us Part, unless I kill you first. Oh, I love that book. Which yeah. uh, was republished by Hay House under Kiss Your Fights Goodbye. In there, I, I talk about my couple's conflict resolution method where you consciously use the relationship and consciously use the repetition compulsion to help each other heal. Because, you know, even though you're not responsible for the other person, we have unconscious fantasies about, gee, maybe I could end up having you be more responsible to me than my parent was and that you can use the relationship as a healing tool but it has to be on the table well that's what group and couple therapy does it tries to make the unconscious conscious and that gives the couple the opportunity to make it come out differently exactly I, I exactly so so that you know there's a patient in one of my groups where he keeps saying what he thinks his wife thinks and what he thinks she wants and it's all an imaginary relationship in his own mind right. instead of because he had to read his mother's mind, you know, so and then he's always feeling burdened and he's always disappointing her because it's never put out there. What do you want? Is this what you, you know? So one, of my one of my colleagues, Lee Kesson, had uh, does couple therapy. He has the 10 rules of engagement because couple therapy is like a mini group. If a person is in group therapy or in couple, it's really the same thing. And one of his rules is you always start when you have a discussion with what I feel rather than finger pointing. I stop people right away when they start, you did this, you did that, talk from yourself. But what all people also do is they make assumptions without checking it out. They assume they know what the other person is thinking and they act as if it's true. And I tell them just because you think something is true doesn't make it true. You Don't believe everything you think. Right. So um, I was working with this couple recently. They came to me because they could not stop fighting. They would they were living in chaos and I couldn't figure out what was going on until they told me the story of their personal lives, individual personal. I came from very different backgrounds. One was a, a Jewish Orthodox Jewish guy from Brooklyn. The, the woman was a Hispanic woman from Mexico. On the surface, they lived very different life, but what was common to the both of them unconsciously was they came from chaotic backgrounds. Both their families were steeped in chaos. In one case, the, the guy's case, his father was a career criminal. He was constantly in jail. In her case, her father was uh, some kind of uh, drug dealer uh, in the cartel, always uh, running from the law. They lived in, and so they recreated their families of origin in the treatment. And when we started talking about what they got out of the situation just the way it was, 
she would, whenever she was really angry with him, she would threaten to end the relationship. And I said, you can't do that. You can't threaten to end every time you're angry. And I said, your mantra should be, the integrity of the relationship takes precedence of any passing feeling. Say that to yourself. Integrity, you can feel as angry as you want, but don't act on it because it creates even more. Until they were able to own what they were getting out of the chaotic background, then things started to improve. Then they could talk to each other. Whether they could have a disagreement without fighting. She stopped threatening to leave every time she was angry. He stopped provoking her but to get tremendous him. work because you really help both of them develop a longer fuse, more impulse control. Don't say everything you think. That's you know, right. and this but, were necessary shifts, you did, and so they they ended up in less chaos. Well, but the, the, the other part of it is they allowed me to take control of the situation. People who don't allow me to take control, get up and leave. And literally, I had one couple who came in fighting bitterly. One, there was a, uh, an affair involved. They were hurling insults at each other. I said, if you don't stop hurling insults and, and start talking your feelings, I'm going to have to end the session. They wouldn't yes. do it. Yes. I, had, yes. I asked them to leave. You had to leave. This is not I there. know. Rob, I had a couple that was in my office when I was in Millbrook. And they were verbally beating the crap out of each other, taking turns. And I said, you two abuse each other. This is yes, this right. is what you do. So right. they, what, what? Wait, you look like you're distracted. What happened? No, I was thinking about another, about- Oh, are you were already on another. You lost focus with me, Rob. Pay attention. Yes, ma'am. All right. <laughs> so, so they were arguing like this. And I said, where did you ever get the idea that you're allowed to verbally abuse each other? And they both looked at me like, we didn't know. Yeah, we right. didn't know that this was a verbal abuse and we didn't know it wasn't allowed. I swear to God, no, no. I never saw them again. And a year later, I'm walking in the jewelry district in New York City and they walk up to me just like that. They said, our marriage is great. We just, from that one session, we discovered. <laughs> that reminds me, I saw something online the other day that said, marriage is like a deck of cards. It begins with two hearts and a diamond. And at the end, you wish you had a club and a spade. That's <laughs> hilarious. You know, this makes me think there are three rings in marriage. The engagement yeah. ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. There you go. All right. But now there's one more. Did you ever hear this one? This one is hilarious, which just shows how miserable people can be in their relationships. When you first get married, you have anywhere sex. On the couch on the washing machine, right? After a year, you have bedroom sex. And then a year after that, you have hallway sex. You pass each other in the hall and you say, fuck you. And the other one says, fuck you. <laughs> I got to tell you, people don't know how they come across. They don't understand how they... I was working with a couple and uh, they came in and the guy was furious at her. What happened was they had been on vacation in a Caribbean island, right? And in the Caribbean island, they went to a crafts fair. And at the crafts fair, she bought a, a statue, a mahogany statue of a rooster. Well, they come back to the hotel. She's walking through the lobby and she says to the woman at the desk, look, I'm coming home with a big brown cock. <laughs> she couldn't understand why her husband was fuming. She said, well, I didn't say it to a man. He said, well, that doesn't make a difference. You humiliated me. She didn't get it. She no, get it. she did not get it. <laughs> she did not get it. And she, he didn't get, nobody got it. You know, I just saw a chat message to you. Hello, Dr. Pepper. My name is Pepper too, but in Russian, it's oh. Perjik. Uh-huh. So we have someone in the studio audience who I happen to know he's a, a group trainee, a very skilled group trainee, and he's here with the same last name as you. 
Well, you know what's wild about it? My original, my original last name wasn't Pepper. My grandfather came from Russia. And at the um, Ellis Island, the officer said, what, what's your name? And he said it in Russian. And the guy put down Pepper. That's how it became Pepper. So maybe I'm related to Chester Purchase. There you go. Every Pepper becomes a group leader. <laughs> That's a that, true is, that is funny, funny, funny. So, you know, you, you notice that when you and I interact, there's a great deal of fun and spontaneity, right? And right. freedom. This uh -huh. is how you want to be in your groups. And when right. you're free to be this way in your groups, running them or as a participant, it trickles down into your life, doesn't it? That's the whole idea. The group is a laboratory. When people are free to say, and one of the things we could talk about is why I think boundary is so important because um, some people have the idea that, and I actually read a book that was by Oprah and someone named uh, Bruce Perry about uh, whatever happened to me. And it's about trauma. And they talk about the importance of having a large network of good friends and relatives to help people through it. Thank and I you. to some extent, that's a bit naive because totally. you can't tell friends and relatives everything for at least two reasons. One of them is that people tend, that we know tend to have an investment in our relationship one way or the other. And if we have a fight with our loved one and we confide in our friends and relatives, often we kiss and make up, but the friends are often stuck with the feelings toward the other person, it, it's destructive. That, that's all, and also there's too much emotional intensity that you don't necessarily wanna give that rawness to a partner. Well, that's the other part, that's very good. Social right. relationships of any kind are not designed to handle the full intensity of people's feelings, the full range of feelings. Look, we all love Billy Joel. Billy Joel is a great singer, songwriter, a musician. He wrote a song called Tell Her About It. In that song, he gives advice. So tell her about it. Tell her everything you feel. Tell her all your crazy dreams. No. Billy, if you're listening, you're a great singer-songwriter. You're not a very good couple therapist because one of my patients took his advice seriously and told his wife about the murderous feelings he was having toward a coworker and his maniacal feelings about how he's going to kill this guy. The wife said to him, you're a psychopath. I'm going to a lawyer to get a divorce. She didn't, she didn't understand unless, you know, your partner is a therapist and who understands. Uh, even then. <laughs> even then it might be too much. You know, you're, you're making me think, I mean, it's like, a, I see where it's like a million fireworks going off. Many therapists are not able to handle the intensity of feeling. That's right. And that's another problem. So you think, okay, I can bring it out in group. But I remember when I was on my master's level, running a group in an inpatient psych hospital. And uh -huh. the leader there was a PhD in psych. And somebody said something and the leader could not handle the level of aggression. And the leader said, I'm not the one locked in a, in a nut house. And uh -huh. I was so horrified uh -huh. to see how the leader um, attacked the patient, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because, the, and you know, a lot of times therapists don't have the proper training. They don't have the capacity to handle the intensity of emotion. That's right. One of the, one of the things a student should learn in their becoming a therapist is how to manage their own aggression. Absolutely right. And you know what? Lou Ormont, the founder of Modern Group Psychoanalysis. I've heard of him, yeah. I'm sure you heard of him say this. He might have said this to you and to me at one point. Yeah. He yeah. said most group therapists don't have a clue 
as to why they're doing or saying or using an intervention. I call it like they're really grope therapists. Yeah. They're groping in the dark. They don't know. But they can do damage. I had a colleague Terrible. who did individual therapy only, and he told me one day that he was going to start a group. And I said, you've never been in a group. You've been not trained in group. What makes you think you can run a group? He said, well, I've read a, I've read a book about it. Yeah, right. I said, oh, you know, that group didn't last more than a week. It couldn't, couldn't get off the ground. And he did, he did harm. People, there are a lot of people who are therapists and, and uh, they just think you just put a, um, eight, eight chairs in a circle and a box of tissues, you do a group. It doesn't work. It's a special training. In fact, just recently, it's the APA finally acknowledged group therapy as a special skill with special training. So it's buyer beware. If I and, have people, and people don't even know that. And, you know, this is and I think also people get ideas about what group is from TV and movies where they see people verbally attacking each other and assaulting each other. And they think, I don't want to go into a group. I, I mean, I got abused like that as a kid. I don't well, want right. that in a group. Well, look know, at Nurse know. Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That, if that didn't turn off millions of people to therapy, people have no idea what therapy is like from watching TV and movies. And, and frankly, you can't know until you've been in it, but it has to be with someone who knows what they're doing. And if I'm saying say anything that anyone takes away in the audience, if you really have issues with relationships, individual therapy can help to a point. In individual th therapy, pe people come for attention. In group, people come to heal relationships. Absolutely. And, relationships. and relationships with yourself and with the others, right? Mm -hmm. When we come back from the next break, how about if we talk about the specific kinds of snags people get into, you know, where they say, oh, I have a crappy boyfriend. I have a crappy girlfriend of crappy marriage. And it happens over and over. This, the common snags people get into. And maybe we could talk about little clues about what they might be doing, right, with that particular snag. Like, oh, I'm always abandoned or I'm always rejected. Do you, you see where I'm going? Absolutely. All right. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a moment. Are you a business looking to expand across the USA? Ask Dr. Love reaches millions of radio listeners, offering you a unique opportunity to reach out to almost every adult listening group as everyone is concerned about their relationships. There is no other relationship advice show broadcast anywhere else in the USA. By advertising on Ask Dr. Love, your company can reach an audience that no other show touches. Visit AskDrLove.com and fill out the contact form to get in on this tremendous opportunity. Fill out the contact form at AskDrLove.com right now and get all the details. Will it be your company that gets to take advantage and grow your business? Want to save money on your next flight? Then pick up the phone and call because the best prices are not online. See, SmartFares has special deals with the airlines. When they have unsold seats, they use SmartFares to fill them. So you get airline tickets at ridiculously low prices. With the extra money you'll save, you can book another trip or treat yourself to dinner. Call today and get the best price on your next flight, guaranteed. Also, save up to 50% off business and first class tickets. You're listening to Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf. If your heart is still hurting over the bodily loss of your loved one, the reason is simple. We're not meant to be separated from those we love, and reconnecting is the only way to end the grief. But reconnecting and staying connected requires guidance. 
As a gift to her listeners, Dr. Turndorf is offering a limited number of discounted grief relief sessions to help you reestablish a relationship with loved ones in spirit and resolve any unfinished issues. If you're ready to experience the healing and joy of reconnecting, visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to schedule your session. But don't wait. Space is limited. Visit drjamieturndorf.com slash griefrelief to find out more. And now, back to Dr. Turndorf. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Love. I'm Dr. Jamie Turndorf talking with Dr. Robert Pepper. We're having a great conversation. And I suggested where we might go in the final segment. Well, one of the things that came to mind on the break was that very often people don't know how to have a fair fight. Fighting is inevitable in a relationship. There's nothing wrong with fighting as long as it's what I call designed toward positive, constructive dialogue. And the first I mentioned before is always start with I feel statement. And the problem is that a lot of people don't know the difference between a feeling and a thought. I remember when I was in a therapy group many years ago, a woman said to me, I feel that you're crazy, she said to me. And I said, well, you know, you may be right, but that's not a feeling. And in that group, the therapist was uh, intact enough to support me. And so as soon as someone says, I feel that, they're off a feeling. I feel angry. I feel hurt. I feel abandoned. Those are feelings. And there's self-feelings, like sad and depressed, and interpersonal feeling. So it's a learning of a language. And so in my group, a lot of the people don't know the difference. One guy came in, he printed out emojis from the internet and handed out yes. the sheet. Yes. Right. So, um, yeah, I had a patient say, What are my choices? All <laughs> uh, right. But I want to just, just for a little moment, this is a subtle nuance, but oh. when you have a partner, someone you're intimate with who is very fragile, you can say, I feel, and the other person will say, Well, who cares? That's your problem. Because they immediately hear your feeling as an attack against them. Like they did something wrong to make you feel this way. They get defensive. They get defensive, especially if they're, you know, fragile ego, not very intact. And with those kinds of people, and they might, it might escalate the conflict because they'll come back and say, well, that's your problem. And then you're not feeling heard. And then you up the ante because you're now you're upset. The other person is defending and not listening to you. So, you know, I talk a lot about this in my books. How do you deal with that? Well, first of all, there are different kinds of fragile. There are some people who are as fragile as a Mack truck. And Good. it's a real, it's a defense and it, it's, it gets in the way for the person who is uh, fragile. I think part of it is they have to learn to separate what the person, the other person is feeling from who they are as a person. And that takes a lot of work too. That's why both people need to be in group. So that's excellent. So what you're saying is just because she feels that way, doesn't mean it's your fault. That's right. That's right. You have to understand. And sometimes the best thing we can do for people, uh, someone we love it's just to listen. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to agree with it. Just listen. You know, just don't do something. Sit there. I call that the put a sock in it and just listen technique. It's very difficult to do. It's yes. very Especially if you're feeling attacked right. or if you're feeling blamed. So that's where I find if you start with a disclaimer, it's very helpful. I'm not saying you did anything wrong. I'm just telling you what happened and how it landed with me. And if you can connect it to your family of origin stuff, your deformative years, that really helps the other person listen because I know it wasn't me. I wasn't there. 
Slower All down. I need is just a reminder. I love that phrase, the, the formative years. You just ran right by it. It's such an accurate description and funny too. So um, the other thing is I find that couples, in, as part of being defensive, ask each other why questions. Why did you come home at three o'clock? Why did you do that? Those get nowhere. Do not, they do, do not ask why questions. They don't. That's great, Rob, because that automatically puts someone on the firing line. Right. It's in like it becomes an interrogation exactly. because what's really what's really behind the why question, I believe, is a fear. I think the person is afraid that the, the spouse was out at three o'clock, but they were fooling around with somebody else. So, so lead with the feeling. Lead with your own feeling. That's right. I feel insecure when you stay out until all hours. Exactly. I, lead with your I own. want you home. I want you home in bed with me at three o'clock in the morning. And again, I really find it helps if you can say, if you can connect it, you know my dad abandoned me. I have a, a real weakness in this area. So automatically you convert the other person from enemy to ally. That's because right. now I can feel, oh, I have empathy for you. That's right. The idea is to have the other person see you as a separate person and have empathy for you. But that takes training and skill. You know, what uh, was it? Brene Brown was talking about the importance of vulnerability. But I think she fell short in telling people, make yourself vulnerable. That's like... Um, turn yourself into a bird. You can't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be vulnerable today. I'm going to make myself. It takes a lot of work to get to why. Their group comes back because That's if right. you reveal these flaws and warts in a group and people embrace you and accept you, ah, now you are more brave to be vulnerable with other people. And also with yourself to allow yourself to go there. And if the other person can't take it, that becomes their problem. If they can't tolerate because it's touching something in them they haven't looked at. It's complicated. I mean, being in a couple, in a relationship is the hardest work you ever do. With that couple that I told you about, where she came from a Mexican background, he, I said to I said to two of them in the beginning, this relationship will either cure you or kill you. Oh, that was brilliant alliteration there. Yeah. And true. And true. But and, it means, and, it, you know, and they didn't, the relationship didn't die, did it? Not at all. And it started to flourish when they both owned what their part was as hard as it was, and they actually drew the person closer to them. Absolutely wonderful. But it can't just happen. Over, I think it. I think people get very frustrated that they think, well, um, I should be able to make myself vulnerable and I'm not doing it, so I'm failing. No, it takes work. Don't think, uh, uh, you know, spin around three times and spit and you're going to be able to be vulnerable. It no, because if you think about all the injuries we suffered when we were little, when we just tried to reveal one little feeling and got shamed or humiliated. So all the armor that we develop against being vulnerable, it's, it's not going to just go away. One patient said to me, my mother used to, when I started crying, he said, my mother would say to me, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. There you go. I mean, that's abuse right it's there. Abuse. Abuse. And it taught, it, I've had patients say that. And then they just said, I never cried again. You know, and I, there it is. I'd never show anybody anything. I shut. I know, I, I know. know. People have actually shut down. I don't think anybody comes out of childhood without some trauma. We no all doubt. Come some trauma. No so, doubt. No doubt. So in the last couple minutes of the show, I want to make sure everybody knows how to find you. And perhaps you also have one parting message for everyone. And then, of course, you know, you'll come back when your next book is out. You'll come back. So go. I'd love to. I'd love to. Well, the way to find me is to go to my website. It's drpepperphd.com. You have some nice, you have nice videos on there. You have blogs. You have all kinds of really links, nice stuff. Links to my book, links to these uh, podcasts. True story. A couple of weeks ago, I got a letter from a woman 
from Arkansas. She said, uh, she wrote, Dear Dr. Pepper, I love your soda, but the last batch I bought had no fizz. Did you change the formula? So I wrote back, dear madam, I think you have the wrong Dr. Pepper. I'm a doctor of psychotherapy, not physics. And I spelled it F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. Fizz. Cute. Very cute. You know, your humor is wonderful. And I'm sure your patients love it as much as I do. So a parting message. They call them pepperisms. Pepperisms. There you go. People say thank you to each other when they really mean I'm touched by what you say. I tell them that thank you is something you say to a waiter when he hands you the menu. It's not an formula. So you have one minute left with your parting message. The parting message I said before. Parting message is the integrity of the relationship takes precedence of any passing feeling. Don't act impulsively. You might regret it. You probably will, right? Will, if you act on it. You and it's would. harder to take it back once it's out. Once it's I out. say relationships are like rubber bands. They can really? only be stretched so far until they break, and you can't put a rubber band back together. And the other, right. The other mantra is, if you really love someone, you fight for them. I like that, too. But not fight with. In, you can fight uh, with, for, but fight with them in a way that for, you're fighting for them. Fight for them, not with them or at them. For fight them. for them and for the relationship. And I always like to have people say, you and I are on the same page. Whatever you say and do, boomerangs back on you. And while it may feel good to get your rocks off on another person, on the rocks is where your relationship is going to end up. Well, it's also a self-attack, ultimately. when someone is You hurt creating- yourself. You hurt the other person. You hurt yourself. You see, interesting. They're talking from the toxic, that part of them that incorporated the parental voice taken out on the other. It's damaging. Oh, hell. Hell yeah. So I I loved having you, Rob. What else can I say? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) There you go. So, and I know my engineer, my beautiful Bob, Bob, I, I know that he loved the show too. I could just feel his vibration, because he's very psychologically savvy. Great. I'd like to find out what he had to say after. You will find out. And <laughs> so I'm not going to say goodbye. I'll say I'll see you next time on Ask Love Dr. You, Love you, Jamie. Take care. You've been listening to Ask Dr. Love with Dr. Jamie Turndorf. Sign up for Dr. Jamie's newsletter at AskDrLove.com and receive her meditation audio that will guide you to open your heart and chill out during these stressful times.